Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so uh, glad that you are here today. If that video made you hungry, I totally get it. Thanks for watching online. For those of you checking this out online or on replay, uh, we're glad that you made it as well. We're kicking off a brand new series today. So if you're a first time guest with us, um, you picked a great day to come check us out. Not just because we have air conditioning, but also because it's the first of a series, which means you're coming in at the very beginning of a conversation. This is kind of how we teach on topics here for a few weeks. Uh, this one I think is going to be about five weeks or so. It's uh, on this on the uh, topic of mortality, which I know is like, you know, always a tough one to do in the summer. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be really important to kind of go with. Um, here, here's some background for you. And this, you may or, or may not remember this from uh, world history books or class, or maybe your his, history buff or whatever, but about 150 years after the death of Jesus, uh, and he was crucified by a Roman government, epidemic of what was probably something like smallpox killed somewhere between a third and a fourth of the world population, including at the time uh, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. It was a big epidemic. A little less than a century later, a second epidemic came. So we're coming through, we're coming through this whole thing. We're like, we've never seen anything like this before. That's not true for our world. That's just true for us as Americans. Um, about, like I said, a little less than a century, another epidemic came in. This time, uh, it was worse. Reports from Rome said that 5,000 people were dying daily from this second bout of smallpox. Now, the Fox News numbers were way less than that, but there's some discrepancy on how... I'm just kidding. Don't, don't read into that. That's just a joke. It's fine. Uh, yeah, too late. Uh, but obviously... This is a bad deal, and uh, the lack of scientific knowledge at that point, their pace in which that was, I mean, can you imagine, imagine how glued we were to TVs uh, about a year and a half ago when Fauci was doing afternoon news sessions and Governor Cuomo was telling us about the numbers in New York. I mean, we, that was like must-see TV. I don't care where you were, home. Uh, you were watching these things come through. Imagine having something worse than the actual a- epidemic with fewer lines of communication and fewer lines of what's actually going on. Imagine how helpless we all felt. Like what is actually happening here? Imagine being in this spot where they, they the best of the best don't even know uh, what's happening uh, and, and what the numbers are truly like. Other than it's really, really bad. 5,000 people a day coming out of Rome, not making it through uh, the night. As you can imagine, panic ensued. Uh, once you were determined to be sick, everyone avoided you. There was no one willing to take care of you. Um, there were no hospitals. There were no nurses uh, making videos about how hard this is and the ships are. It was just panic and chaos and absolutely Uh, an awful situation. In fact, one Greek historian described it this way. He said, they died, they, these people, these victims, died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all of the inhabitants perished through lack of any intention to care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or no law of man had a restraining uh, influence. They treated unburied corpses like dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease that they had. Uh, in the midst of all of that, 
And while all of this is going on, a group of people would gather together on Sundays, share a meal with one another, and remind each other of the teachings of a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi, turned you know, persecuted, crucified, and what they believe rose again. Um, and they would begin to highlight stories of, of the things that he did and the things that he said. And someone who told them uh, about them, told them stories about him standing up in front of people and, and going and teaching them and, and, and walking through and healing sick people and touching lepers and, and, and taking people who are unclean and, and making them clean again and telling his disciples not to run from the sick, to, but to go and to heal the sick. And they remembered him saying something about phrases like, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you healed me or you touched me or you cared uh, for me. I was sick and you looked after me. And I'm sure in the midst of all of the chaos happening in Rome and the reports and the mixed reports and all the other stuff and just the, the contagion and the, the, if you were sick, you were ostracized, you were kicked out, you were all of this. And then and you, so you have the reality on, on this hand and then you've got these these teachings, which felt so safe during times of non-epidemic times, right? Uh, and then how do, you, how do you kind of marry those two things together? How do you maintain the teachings of Jesus or be a follower of Jesus and yet have all of these uh, things going on in, in this world? What do you do with all of that? I'm sure it led to some hard conversations and some tough convictions uh, of them saying, what do we do about this? Do we do anything with this? Um, uh, and history would show that uh, they actually d- did begin to do things with them. And uh, it was one of the, Rodney Stark wrote a book on the, uh, the rise of uh, early Christianity. And one of the biggest reasons that he gave for why the church flourished when everything else kind of was against it. How did it survive even the Roman Empire? I mean, you know, um, one of the reasons he said is because when you've been nursed back to health, uh, by someone who was operating dangerously out of selfless motives based on their religious principles or their beliefs or whatever, you don't need to be persuaded into believing their set of beliefs. If your only option was, I'm probably going to die, and somebody acted dangerously with selfless motives for you on your behalf to take care of you and nurse you back to health, you don't have to be convinced or persuaded into tell me what you believe and I'll see if I can weigh the reasons versus the, you're just like, I'm in. Whatever led you to do that for me, I'm on board. Uh, and so that, that was one of the reasons that he would say early Christianity succeeded is because they were the ones who were willing to care, often costing them their lives, but you know, on, on the occasion, bringing people through that and then watching the uh, transfer of beliefs or the additions or whatever you want to call of evangelism in that way. It's almost like uh, healing evangelism in a unique sort of way. Stories, uh, not, not only of, of uh, not only examples of the people who had been healed, but stories of their selfless concern for the less fortunate begin to spread. And by the late fourth century, the new Roman emperor was trying to make sense of the explosive growth of the early church. And he wrote to one of his pagan priests and ministers about it. Julian, they call him the apostate because he rejected, he, he was Christian and he turned away from it. And, he, and he's trying to explain to them, you guys, we gotta do better. They're beating us. The numbers are increasing. We have the power still. I'm, I'm emperor. Like I get to call the shots. And no matter what we try to do to extinguish this flame of this religion, it continues to grow in this way. And he's writing a letter that we have, uh, that was kind of like uh, intercepted in, 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 and, uh, and he's not writing to Christian priests. He's writing to one of his fellow people and trying to explain the situation. Here's what he says. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, 
The impious Galatians observed this. This is what he would call um, people from Galatia, that area, these Christians. That's where the early church really kind of had its uh, starting point. They observed this and they devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galatians support not only their poor, but ours as well. What's the reason we're losing? Because these guys... And he's probably thinking of this as their strategy. Uh, they looked at the game plan. What if we were like really kind to poor people? <laughs> what, if, what if we did this? And then all of a sudden they would like us. They did this and they did it better than us, those tricksters. They were nicer than us, doggone it. We weren't as kind to our poor as they were. In fact, they're taking care of our poor as well. And he's almost blaming them for this in this letter and trying to say this is an explanation for it and also an incentive for us to kind of do something about this. It's just, an amazing sort of reaction to what's truly a tragedy going on in the world. Fast forward nearly a thousand years now, uh, the Black Plague is ravaging the European continent. In a seven-year span in the Black Plague, over 100 million people die. 100 million people. That's about one in three in the current U.S. population. Uh, COVID doesn't hold a candle to the onslaught that was going on. No vaccines were promised, administered, or avoided uh, for political reasons in any way. The Black Plague was absolutely uh, just a death sentence. Once again, few people are uh, available to care for the dying. Um, There are not enough priests to be able to read last rites. People would send messages like, my dad's dying, please send someone to come and pray last rites over this person. And the priest would be, have been so busy with other things and so different, there's just not enough manpower to cover all of this. And so the church, the Catholic church created an instruction manual called Ars Moriendi. Ars Moriendi, translated the art of dying. Because we don't have enough people to go and be bedside mannered, you know, person with this person, we are going to do a small group. We're going to do a study group where we're going to teach you how to die well. That's essentially what it was. The long version had chapters into it. Here's a, here's a headline, here's a, you know, a heading and whatever, and here's a long reading. Here's why death isn't something to be afraid of. Here's why we need to avoid the temptations of a lack of faith or despair or impatience in this time. Once you know that you're dying and all of a sudden reality begins to sit in, you begin to like, you know, people change in those moments, right? This is for that, in that season, here's what they need to know in those moments. General rules of behavior at, the, at a deathbed. This is for those administering this. So, so you're gonna take this book. This is, this is the art of dying. This is all for the person who's dying, but also for the loved ones who are caring for that person. Since we can't send a priest here, here's what you should do. Here's the prayers that you should pray. Here's the manner at which you should use. Here's the words to avoid. Here's the ones to say. Here's, the, here's some prayers uh, that are scripted out for you to be able to, to read. And if we were there, you know, here's what, uh, essentially what we would do. This is like the most bummer study group you could ever be a part of <laughs> under the circumstances, right? In fact, if you were, if you were in that group and somebody goes, hey, it's, I feel really bad for you. We're gonna do. We're gonna start a study group with this book. We got this new devotional. We're gonna work through. And he was like, "Oh my gosh, the end is coming. This is not good for me." Exactly. So they had this book, Ars Moriendi. They also had a shorter version, uh, wood engravings or tablets, um, or like modern day flashcards, basically. Um, and the reason is because uh, a lot of their people couldn't read, and so to give them a chapter book would be like, "This is useless. What am I supposed to do with this?" And so they created images with little different sections, and then they would teach them orally, um, here's, what you, here's how to read this picture. Here's one of the engravings you can find on, on Wikipedia of this man on his deathbed, demons approaching him with all kinds of different options of pride or despair or lack of faith or whatever, and saints praying over this person. So they would present this to him. Do you see this? Can you, are, you, are you awake? Can you, can you see this? this? is what's happening. This is what's going on. They would walk this person through Ars Moriendi through this deal like a picture book. 
Throughout history, the church has felt a responsibility to teach people how to die well. And I feel like I and we as a part of Eastlake are are no exception to this. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, summer feels like an awkward time to be talking about this because summer is like about life, man, and boating and fitting into swimsuits and (laughs) drinking hard seltzer so I can fit into those swimsuits and all of the the real positive things in life. Uh, And I get it. The reality is there's never a good time, right? There's never a good time. Don't make me wait until I'm visiting you at Cadillac to talk about the art of dying well. I figured, let's do it now. And let's do it in the middle of summer, because why not? I had a couple of working titles for this series that I was kind of thinking through, um, other than Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down. It was a kid's, I I like that. It's like the kid's song that we used to all sing, so I felt like there was enough ambiguity in there that you would actually show up to church. Um, Because I thought if I said, oh, here's, let's do a series on how to die well, um, you know, you might not come. Or the, the people who would come are like the real, like, I'm, I am, on, that's a reality for me. I'm on like the verge here. I'm getting kind of old. So I'm like, you know, it's like a, a, all the young people are, oh, good, I'm going to be out on my boat, whatever. Anyways, um, I thought about calling it Cool Ways to Die. Um, but then it would be like, you'd be like, is this a series on skydiving? What is this about? Um, Speaking of cool ways to die, I, uh, Kylie and I went on a cruise to the Grand Cayman Islands about seven years ago. And in preparation for like this big fun, we were going with a group of friends, uh, in preparation for this, you know how you, you, the best part of the vacation is knowing it's on the calendar and then planning ahead, like what you're going to do and, you know, Googling and trip, trip advisor and what should I do? You know, if I'm going to go, if I'm, if I'm going to this place one time in my life, like what, what can I not miss in this way? And one of the things that they said was one of the things you cannot miss if you go to Grand Cayman Islands, you should absolutely go to Stingray City and swim with stingrays. That's what they said. There's a sandbar. Yeah, you've been there? There's a sandbar in the middle of the ocean. It's just blue everywhere. And there's like this big giant flat spot. And then you come and then you like bring squid with you. And then they just come out of the woodwork. Well, not woodwork because it's ocean. But they come out of wherever they come from. Caves? I have no idea where they sleep. They come and they swarm all around you. And you begin. And so we, we saw these videos of these things. And we, we, uh, we took it to our friends and we were like, you guys, we found it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to swim with stingrays. And they, the first thing out of their mouth was the exact same thing that you're thinking right now. Isn't that how the crocodile hunter died? Yeah. That's what they said. And we were like, yeah, but, you know, this looks like a pretty legit website. So I think we're going to be okay. On TripAdvisor, it was one of the 30 things you need to do before you die. Now, the tricky thing is it was number 30. So, like... That's it. This is the last thing. And that's it. There is no 31. Once you do this, you've done it all, and you may now die in peace. That's one way to interpret it. Uh, so we got on the boat with this guy, and we're, st- and we're still like a little bit nervous because, uh, you know, I don't know. You're just nervous. This stingray. It's, it wasn't, this was seven years ago, so this wasn't that far removed from Erwin Ir- dying. Anyways. Uh, and uh, so somebody on the boat brought it up, which I was glad it wasn't me, uh, to this boat captain as we're flying out there. Uh, so I, what do we need to know? You know, uh, we know that the crocodile hunter died this way. What's, what's some tips and whatever? He's like, ah, it's not a big deal. You're, you'll be fine as long as you don't make them mad, right? <laughs> That's what he said. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know what makes a stingray mad. 
I mean, there are some obvious things. Don't punch it in the face, right? That would probably make it mad. But is it mad if I start talking about how cool manta rays are? Like, is that, does it get really pissed off that I'm like, oh, manta rays are awesome, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what it takes uh, to, uh, to not make a stingray mad. Anyways, uh, so, so we did it. It was awesome. We survived. It was great. You definitely need to try it. If I, it was not great, then I probably would have incorporated it into a uh, cool ways to die, or we almost died in this way, but I didn't. Anyways, that said, oh, that side note, bring you back in. Um, in spite of being a pastor, I have had very few personal encounters with death. Uh, and bedside manners of stuff. Now, some of you have been in the church long enough to be like, you were in a massive car accident in ICU. Let's not forget that. <laughs> I understand that. I'm saying on the other side of it, watching it take place. Um, it's been, we have a relatively young church, uh, which is great. I do a lot of weddings, not a lot of funerals um, yet. And, uh, and I haven't had many people close to me in life pass away. My grandpa passed away a few years ago. Uh, but it was like a sudden thing. And I was out of town and got a phone call about it. So I, it wasn't like grandpa's sick, you need to come see him and you're going to the hospital and it's like a long drawn out process. It just hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of that um, in my life. Um, and I've, 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 yeah, again, had very, very few encounters. Once when I lived on the West side, I got a call from my dad, who's actually here today. Um, and uh, he, uh, he said that somebody in the church, I was working for him at the time doing youth ministry and somebody in the church had had a brain aneurysm. She was at Harborview. She'd been airlifted over there. Um, and uh, she wanted me, he wanted me to come and do some visitation uh, because there was two teenage boys and I was the youth pastor at the time and, and I knew the family and all that kind of stuff. She was only in her early forties, brain aneurysm. And she'd been complaining of headaches and, and all this stuff. And then it began to affect eyesight. And then they went in for testing. And by the time they did some testing, it had, um, it had been too, too long. And uh, when they opened it up, it was, it was too much. And she was, by the time I got there, she was being kept alive by uh, machines. And they kept asking me to pray for a miracle, which I did. But I can't help wonder if my prayers at that point wouldn't have been better served helping them mourn and process death, right? This art of dying um, well, and uh, it kind of messes with you a little bit. In fact, every time I got a headache from then on, I'm like, is this an aneurysm? What is going on? How's my eyesight? You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's tough in that way. But the worst part is I found myself waiting for an opportunity to leave. You know, that like that like human, like if you've ever been in those awkward situations, you're like, this is more, this is awkward, this is painful, this is, I, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't know if this person wants me to be here, it's uncomfortable. And I felt, I walked away from that, and for the, like the next, I don't know how long, I felt like I failed in a basic responsibility as pastor and friend. And I, I knew in that moment I want to be better at that. I want you to be better at that. I, I don't want us to slough this off and this is the role of the pastor. You, you're going to have family, friends, loved ones uh, die, and I, I want you to be really good at learning and experiencing walking through um, what it means to live well or to die well. And I think that that in turn leads us into learning how to live well, um, which is important, which is why I think this is appropriate, which is why I think summer is a great time to, to talk about something like this. Learning how to die well influences and speaks into learning what it means to uh, live well. Because of modern medicine, dying often at this point in time uh, takes uh, a long time. One study found that elderly are, uh, most elderly people are diagnosed as having a disease three years before it will eventually in their lives. And the odds are, if you're the average American, the last two years of your life, you'll need someone to help you with the routine activities of daily living because of some sort of chronic uh, illness. So um, 
from from a uh, uh, like a standpoint of looking at this, I'm I'm looking at this in in terms of we've never because of modern medicine, we're in a unique era where our mortality is a little bit more obvious. It's a little bit more, um, we, we, we know that emergency things still happen in those things, but a lot of times it is a process. I see this. I know, I know that I'm going to die. And we all know that we're going to die, right? Everybody, I'm hope, hopefully you're convinced 100%, right? Forever. That's how it works. Uh, we know that, but the timeline is so far off, it means nothing to us. Um, and yet when that timeline isn't far off, when the doctor says six months, three years, six months, or, you know, three years, whatever, um, then all of a sudden, like our reality shifts a little bit and like it's a wake up call to our system and, uh, and then uh, things begin to get more clear. Um, priorities in life and family and time and money and jobs and all of the things, marriages, kids, everything begins to be like, I'm forced now to see what's most important and forced to make decisions based on a timeline, based on a time frame, based on uh, something that, that, that exists in this way. I, I, I read a, a, a story, um, it's a, it was a memoir written by a guy named Christopher Hitchens who knew he was dying. He, the book is called Mortality. And he was a fantastic writer. He was, a, he was one of the, uh, the atheists who wrote a bunch of stuff anti-Christianity, but he was a fantastic writer for Vanity Fair. And in this one, um, he, his pen is used to kind of describe him going through uh, this this cancer that's eating away at his body, and and um, he's kind of um, just writing about this experience for himself. I think is kind of a therapeutic thing, but also just as a way of kind of talking about mortality in, in general. Um, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer two years prior to his death, and he describes the chemotherapy process in graphic detail and with his classic wit. He had doctors and nurses and everybody telling him how lucky you are to have uh, to live in this era. We have so many different treatments available. And his line in this was, "Oh, how lucky for me to be able to experience a degree of suffering that previous generations haven't been able to afford." (laughs) That's the kind of wit and humor and insight that you get. That's full of it. In it, he quotes uh, another person who had also gone through a a dying experience, uh, a person named Sidney Hook. And here's what he says. I lay at the point of death. A congestive heart failure was treated for diagnostic purposes by an angiogram that triggered a stroke. Violent and painful hiccups uninterrupted for several days and nights prevented the uh, ingestion of food. My left side and one of my vocal cords became paralyzed. Some form of inflammation set in and I felt like I was drowning in a sea of slime, in one of my lucid intervals during those days of agony, I asked my physician to discontinue all life-supporting services or show me how to do it. That's uh, a gra- in graphic detail, this person who knows I am, I am going to die. And it's, uh, it's not a matter of, of years, it's a matter of moments, right? Um, in our era of human history, we can anticipate mortality more than most previous generations. And nevertheless, I, I said, in, in spite of this, this is one group of people. The rest of us, the ones who just woke up today, the alarm went off and we're like, we're going to church today. This is where we're at. We live most of our lives aware of death, but strangers to it. Aware that we're going to, but strangers to it. I have a neighbor who lives directly behind me that I know nothing about. Now, that doesn't make me a bad neighbor. I'm a very good neighbor with everyone else on my block, I promise. I know Trudy, I know Jim and Patsy, uh, I know Sean and Nikki. In fact, my kids go over there all the time and, and raid their fridge. It's, it's great, okay? So don't be like, Brent, you need to be better at being a neighborly. 
he has no intention of ever wanting to you know, be known or, or whatever. I've seen him mowing his lawn. Um, his lights are on at night. I know he lives there. Um, he doesn't sit down on his back patio. He doesn't walk around the block. He doesn't walk a dog. Um, he doesn't answer his door on Halloween, so my kids hate him. Um, we live 80 feet away from each other, and I don't know anything about him. I'm aware that he exists, but we're complete strangers. Uh, And in the same sort of way, when it comes to death, a lot of times in our current way of doing things, unless we've had somebody tell us, you know, well, the reports are not good. It's not looking great. At that point, things change. But for the most of us in in this other arena of life, we're aware of death. We just find ourselves strangers to it. Cemeteries used to surround church buildings. You'd have to walk past them every Sunday as you made your way to church. And now we push them to the outskirts of communities, right? We push them into like far off places where we don't have to to go and visit them unless we're being intentional to go there. In 1908, only 14% of deaths took place in an institutional setting, such as a hospital, a nursing home, a hospice care center, or whatever. But by the end of the century, it was nearly 80%. So most of it took place at home and surrounded by family and friends. And now they're at a hospital and we'll go visit them during visiting hours, maybe. You know what I mean? Human mortality is likened five times in scripture to the life cycle of grass. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 when he writes his letter to the church in regards to their suffering. First Peter's entire book on suffering as a church and a community and walking through this together, kind of a memoir on suffering for the church. And in it, he, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and saying, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What's he trying to do? He's trying to point to this fact that your life is like the transient nature of grass. It grows and it dies. It, it it's green and then it's brown. It's, 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 uh, it, it comes and it goes. It's, it's fragile. Uh, it's delicate. Um, it, it's, it's why, like in my mind, I was thinking this, like, why is he trying to do this? What's he trying to communicate to them? He's trying to remind them in the midst of their suffering, listen, all life is fragile. All life is transient. We, we look at, at things and, and when we hear bad news come down and somebody, you just found out, oh my gosh, did you hear so-and-so has like six months to live? And then, and then we go, oh man, life's so fragile. In that moment, we think life's so fragile. And what Peter is trying to do in this letter to his church is go, listen, I know you don't feel this. I know you're a stranger to it. But just so you know, all life is fragile. Everything is temporary. Everything's transient. Everything's delicate. This, this thing that you have, this, these moments that you have, gift it's a gift. It's an opportunity. It's a, it's a chance to live well. Psalm one, uh, 103, chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 103, verse 15 and 16. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like the flower of a field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and it remembers its place no more. And I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think the point of it is trying to say it's, it's insignificant, right? Or it's, what's the point of it? And, or like, oh, woe is me and all this kind of stuff. I think what he's trying, like the psalmist is trying to do is talk about this transient, fragile nature of this sort of thing, that your life, my life is like grass in the summer that withers and dies because you can only water it two times a week, 30 minutes each zone, and that's how it works, and that's what the irrigation is doing. Anyways, it doesn't matter. That's, but that's what's happening in this. My goal in this series is to bring attention to your mortality, to begin to live under the reality that life is transitory, that you can learn how to die well, and the payoff 
for learning that is that I think it helps you live well. Once you learn what it would look like to die well, you then have a new perspective on what it might mean for you to learn to live well. When I do funerals, and I I mentioned I don't do a lot of them, but when I do, um, I often uh, reference this idea that this deceased person has left us with one opportunity to receive a final gift. I'm sure that they were gift givers through their life. Some of them, I'll say, she was your mom, she was your dad, or you know, or he was your dad, or whatever. Um, and they, they give you many gifts throughout life. Here's one last gift that they give you: the opportunity to be aware of your mortality. And I'll, I'll use a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote kind of about his wife's death, watching her die, and then the emotions that involved. It's like this diary that he kept afterwards, which is very unique and very different from all of the rest of his writings. It's called "The Grief Observed." And, and he describes how he felt in the midst of the grieving process with everyone else immediately following the death of his wife. And he said, an odd byproduct of my loss is that I'm aware of being an embarrassment to everyone that I meet. I feel like I'm an embarrassment. Like when I'm around them, I'm an embarrassment. Perhaps the bereaved ought to be isolated out in special settlements like lepers. Like when, when these things happen, when you lose a loved one, you're gone for six months because you're just a mess. Like we can't be around you. To some, I'm worse than an embarrassment. He says, I am a death's head. And he references this, this skull, this death's head. That You remember like in the cartoons when there was always like a big library with a philosopher, they would always have a skull right on there. What, what is that? That's called a memento mori. It is an item that, reme- that, that calls about a death's head, reminds you of your mortality. It's a memory of your mortality. Don't ever forget it all is just this. This is what it is. This is what it eventually comes to in this way. And so, therefore, because of that, because of, uh, he says, I, I, I'm a death's head, I'm a reminder of our mortality. Um, it's not all negative though, right? I mean, that's, that, that's what I think, Lewis eventually gets around to in, towards the end of that book. And the, the thing that, that Peter is trying to communicate to his church in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss, and many of them had lost loved ones recently, both because of persecution and just because of life in general. Remember everything, it's transitory. It's, you have one opportunity to be able to do this. And only by facing and accepting the reality of your coming death can you become authentically alive. And so that's my argument. That's what I want to try and prove to you over the next couple of weeks. We're going to take a few weeks this summer, four more weeks in preparation for this. I'm, week one of a series is just setting the stage. Can be like, here's the direction, here's where we're going. If there wasn't enough Bible verses for you, don't worry, come back, we'll get there. But here's what this means. I want to talk about learning to die well because I think it helps you live well. And I want that for you so badly. I'll leave you with a prayer that I found uh, by St. Isaac the Assyrian. Here's what he said. Prepare your heart for departure. If you're wise, you'll expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to it, saying, come in peace. I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. My prayer is at the end of your time at expiration of life or whatever, that you would reflect on something. I remember a time at East Lake where there was this talk about death and it felt so weird because it felt so out of place because it was summer and I left that afternoon and I went on a boat and I watched my kids water ski or tube and I felt like I've never been more fully alive than I am. That's true. That's great. I love it. I, I think that a, a, a firm grasp on this will help those moments pop out even more so about the joy that we do have with the opportunities that we get. So my prayer 
uh, is uh, that, well, I feel a responsibility to teach you Ars Moriendi, the art of dying, and that uh, it would help you live a life more fully there. So let's pray. Father, our prayer is that that would be true for us wherever that is. Maybe uh, this uh, mortality piece is not something we had to be talked into. We've been facing this. We've, we're experiencing this. We're going through this right now, uh, or we've lost a loved one recently or whatever, uh, or perhaps it does feel distant, feels far away. It feels irrelevant. I pray that no matter where we find ourselves on that spectrum, that you begin to work in our hearts and in our minds to understand the gift that you have given us with life and the opportunity that we have to live it uh, to your glory. So give us wisdom to know what to do uh, with that this week and then courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.